Method and Madness is a true crime podcast and contains descriptions of violence. This episode features themes of drug use and mentions of suicide. Listener discretion is advised. Her disappearance went largely ignored by law enforcement until the murder of a husband and father prompted a closer look. This is Method and Madness, Episode 41, The Murder of Laura Babcock. I'm your host, Dawn Gandhi. The body was dismembered. A ransom note was discovered. Hiker stumbled upon the nude body of a local... Police are looking into the brutal slaying of a young woman. There may be a clue in a released 911 call from... The victim said she was stalked for five years. Held captive inside a storage container. It was a twisted mix of obsession and revenge. No weapon has been located. Shot while asleep in their beds. Method. And madness. Previously on Method and Madness, 32-year-old man, husband, and father of one, Tim Bosma, had been trying to sell his pickup truck and posted an ad online. When potential buyers Dellen Millard and Mark Smitch showed up to the Bosma home after 9 p.m. May 6, 2013, Tim went with them on a test drive. During the brief meeting in the driveway that night, the two men were seen by Tim's wife, Charlene, and the couple's tenant, Wayne, who rented their basement apartment. Tim told Charlene that he'd be right back before getting into the passenger seat. One of the potential buyers was at the wheel, and the other was in the back seat. Tim never returned. Through a series of tips and a lot of dedication from Tim's family and friends, police located Tim's abandoned cell phone, his truck, and later that month, his charred remains. Dellen Millard and Mark Smitch were arrested, charged, and found guilty of first-degree murder. They had left a ton of physical and digital evidence behind. When Dellen pointed the blame at Mark and Mark pointed the blame at Dellen, Tim's loved ones and the public struggled to make sense of why the pair targeted an innocent man a loving husband and father, and killed him over a pickup truck. And the fact that Dellen Millard was the heir to a fortune, one he'd inherited six months earlier, well, made the crime that much more baffling. Why would a millionaire need to steal a truck in the first place, and why kill someone over it when, if theft was truly your motivation, you could commit that crime? without physically harming anyone. What came out in court later was that the men were planning on returning to Tim's home later that night to steal the truck, which is by far a less risky choice than being seen by two witnesses, than killing a man in a truck and spending the rest of the night cleaning up the crime scene and disposing of the body. Nothing about Tim's murder made sense. And a lot of the evidence found during the investigation and presented at trial showed premeditation. There was the purchase of a gun ahead of time, and that gun was brought to the test drive and was the weapon used to kill Tim. One of the killers, Dellen, had purchased an animal incinerator, which he told some people he was using to dispose of trash, while he told others it was to get into the business of animal cremation with his uncle, 
a notion that the uncle has said is preposterous and holds no truth. And it was that incinerator, which Dellen called the Eliminator, that was used to burn Tim's body. While there is no certainty on what exactly went down in Tim's truck that night, the testimony of Mark Smitch at trial provided the most insight into the possible events. Tim was most likely shot at point-blank range just moments after leaving his driveway. Whether Mark pulled the trigger or Dellen did depends on who you believe, but it's well known that Mark was Dellen's lapdog, so to speak. Now, what we didn't explore in the last episode, but I touched on toward the end, was that once Dellen and Mark were arrested for Tim's murder, two other cases were looked into for possible criminal activity. One was the disappearance of a woman named Laura Babcock. Laura had gone missing in July of 2012. The other case in which Dellen was being investigated was the death of Wayne Millard, Dellen's father. Wayne had died of an apparent suicide in November 2012, but now police were looking at it as a potential homicide. This is not the first case I've covered where an incident was ignored by or mishandled by police and therefore more crimes occurred. Look at episode 24, Murder by Miles, where an investigation into the murder of a woman was so focused on her husband that the actual killer went on to kill others. As we walk through this timeline, you'll see how many opportunities were missed and how, if law enforcement had interviewed the last person to speak with Laura Babcock, the deaths of Tim Bosma and Wayne Millard may have never occurred. There's a lot more to unpack here. Let's dive in. Laura Babcock was born on February 11, 1989, to Clayton and Linda, and had an older brother, Brent. She attended the University of Toronto and graduated with a degree in English and drama. Laura was known to have a fun personality, and her friend Megan described her as bubbly, outgoing, and amazing. The word bubbly is actually said often when friends of Laura's talk about her. And in a cell phone video that one friend took of her shortly before she disappeared, Laura's acting goofy for the camera and meowing, just a fun moment between friends, highlighting Laura's personality. In the spring of 2012, Laura's family started noticing some changes in her. Her father, Clayton, would later describe it, quote, Laura was frustrated. She seemed to be agitated and couldn't sit still. And friends of Laura's have confirmed that she was suffering from anxiety and depression and was being treated with medication. Still, she was dealing with what's been described as misdiagnoses by doctors and an overall struggle in finding her way. Laura, just 23 years old, was still living at home with her parents, and arguments were beginning to form regarding the house rules. Having recently graduated from college, Laura was most likely wanting her freedom and her parents were enforcing rules like curfews, etc. Her father said, quote, She wasn't banished from the home, but you can't keep coming home around 2 or 3 in the morning. She was eager to begin a career and had aspirations to be an actress, but in the meantime, 
wanted a job that could bring in some extra cash. That's when she heard that there was some good money in working as an escort. So, for a brief period of time, Laura worked as an escort, and it was around this time that Laura's friend Megan started to keep her distance, physically, at least. The two still communicated via text daily. Laura had had an on-again, off-again dating relationship with, you guessed it, Dellen Millard. Reports indicate that Laura met Dellen in either 2008 or 2009. In 2010, Dellen hosted a party at Toronto's Pearson Airport, and Laura was there. The two were dating at the time. It was at that party that Dellen met Christina Nudga. Remember her? She was the girlfriend that was charged with accessory after the fact for helping Dellen cover up the murder of Tim Bosma. In February 2011, friends had thrown a surprise birthday party for Laura, and it was at that event when Dellen and Christina reconnected and started seeing each other. Dellen wasn't exactly a monogamous kind of guy, and there was some tension and jealousy between Laura, who still had feelings for him, and Christina. In February of 2012, Christina texted Laura some remarks alluding to the fact that Dellen preferred Christina, Laura needed to get over it, you get the idea. It had been on Laura's birthday, and Christina was out at a bar with their mutual friend, Caroline. They thought it would be funny to text Laura, so Christina texted this. Happy birthday. A year ago today was the first day I slept with Dellen. Laura texted back, That's fine. I slept with him a few weeks ago. It wasn't the response that Christina expected, and she got upset, wondering if it was true. Enter Dellen. Texts he sent to Christina said, quote, First, I am going to hurt her. Then I'll make her leave. I will remove her from our lives. Christina responded with, I don't know why, but when you say things like, I'm going to hurt her, make her leave, remove her from our lives, I feel really loved and warm on the inside. That brings us to the spring of 2012, when friends and family of Laura's said she started acting differently. I can't stress this enough. Articles written about Laura, the sensationalized ones that pop into my feed when I'm researching the ones I try to ignore, make it sound like this time period in which Laura was struggling was all-encompassing of who she was as a person. She was going through a rough patch in her life. She'd gotten her college degree, moved out of her parents' home, and was seeking treatment for mental illness. And she did begin work as an escort and reportedly had turned to some recreational drugs. So quite bluntly, when she disappeared that summer, police wrote it off as a runaway situation. Friend and former boyfriend Sean Lerner can't say enough positive things about Laura. She reached out to him in June of 2012, looking for a place to stay as she'd moved out of her parents' house and didn't have a permanent home. Sean had put her up in a hotel and lent her his iPad so she could look for an apartment. The two kept in touch semi-regularly since their breakup about six months prior. So when Sean stopped hearing from Laura, he knew something was wrong. Yes, she'd been acting out of character overall, but it wasn't like her to cut off communication with her friends, and he hadn't heard from her since July 1st. 
and perhaps most alarming and most telling, was that she left behind her dog, a white Maltese named Lacey, that she always had with her, even when she was staying with friends. After two weeks of no contact from Laura, Sean and Laura's family filed a missing persons report. Because she had no permanent residence and was couchsurfing, essentially, it was hard to notice that it wasn't just Sean she'd stopped contacting. It was everyone. Sean created a Facebook page dedicated to tracking her down. He also obtained her cell phone bill from her parents. Now, this would be a key moment in this case. Sean started reaching out to all of her contacts to see if anyone had heard from her. With her phone records in hand, Sean saw that her last contact was to Dellen Millard. On July 26th, Sean reached out to Dellen first with a text where he introduced himself and said he wasn't sure if Dellen had heard, but Laura had been missing for the past three weeks. He asked if Dellen had been in touch with her at all, and Dellen wrote back, quote, heard about that, don't know where she is. Sean responded, thanks, I'm looking at her phone bill. I see she spoke to you a lot around the end of June. The last eight calls she made before disappearing were all to you. Did she mention anything about where she might be going or with whom? For what it's worth, I'm not looking to get anyone in trouble, just really concerned for her safety. Seven minutes later, Sean hadn't received a response, so he texted Dellen this. Not trying to point a finger, just wondering if she might have mentioned something in passing that could help us find her. If you don't know anything, that's fine, but kindly reply to confirm receipt of message received. Sean then asked to meet at a Starbucks in Mississauga, to which, surprisingly, Dellen agreed. During their meeting, Sean asked Dellen if he'd had anything to do with Laura's disappearance, to which he replied no, and that Laura had been doing cocaine and he had refused to help her out, including helping her find a place to stay. He also denied ever having a sexual relationship with Laura and told Sean, as they said their goodbyes, that he should have, quote, no reasonable expectation of finding her. When Sean Lerner saw a picture of Dellen Millard on the news in May 2013 and learned he was charged in the murder of an Ancaster man, he said he got chills. He had just spent close to a year with no answers on where his friend Laura was. He had pressed police to search and was always told that she probably just ran away. She was an escort. She was dabbling in cocaine. You can imagine how seriously the police were going to take her disappearance. But then in June 2013, after Dellen's and Mark's arrest for the murder of Tim Bosma, police were back at Dellen's properties conducting searches. They were finally taking Laura's disappearance seriously and recognizing that her last known phone calls were to a man now suspected of murder. Upon doing more extensive searches, evidence was discovered that put Laura Babcock at Dellen's house on the night she disappeared. Here is some of that evidence. On Thursday, July 3, 2012, Laura was picked up by Dellen at the Kipling subway station in Toronto. He drove her back to his home, a ranch bungalow in Etobicoke, that was pretty much a bachelor pad. 
At 7.03 p.m., the last recorded call was made from her phone. It lasted about 60 seconds and was most likely to retrieve her voice messages. Cell tower information for Laura's phone pinged about 1,300 feet, or 400 meters, from Dellen's home. At 7.30 p.m., Dellen texted Mark, I'm on a mission, back in one hour. Her phone continued to receive calls and texts until the next morning, all of which went unanswered. On July 4th, Dellen had rush-ordered a new bed from Sleep Country in Mississauga. He paid over $2,400 for it. He also texted Mark that day, rolled first spliff, with a photo taken outside of his home of a blue tarp rolled up with what looked like a body inside. Next to it was Dellen's dog sitting. The iPad that Sean Lerner had loaned Laura was connected to Dellen Millard's computer on July 4th and renamed Mark's iPad. That same night, using the iPad, Mark wrote down lyrics to a rap song he'd written. A warning, the lyrics are disturbing. Some of them said, The bitch started off all skin and bone. Now the bitch lie on some ashy stone. Last time I saw her is outside the home, and if you go swimming, you can find her phone. There was also video recorded of Mark performing the rap. When his mechanic couldn't build a homemade incinerator that was requested, Dellen purchased one for $15,000. On July 5th, he received the incinerator, but it wasn't up and running just yet. He and Mark had texted each other about testing it out, with Mark writing, we gotta bring something with bones in it. On July 7th, Dellen had a reminder set on his phone's calendar to do a barn smell check. On July 23rd, after setting up the incinerator, Dellen texted Mark, quote, the BBQ is ready for meat. A screen grab found on Dellen's phone showed an internet search for what temperature is cremation done at? And on his iPhone was a photo of Mark standing in front of the incinerator that day with something burning inside of it. Police also found Laura's duffel bag with a luggage tag attached, her name handwritten on it, at Mark's home in 2013. And Mark Smitch had told his girlfriend, Marlena, right before he was arrested for the murder of Tim Bosma, that it, quote, wasn't the only body they had burned. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. I don't know about you, but I'm really thankful that mental health and self-care are taking more of a front seat these days. Therapy has helped me when I felt overwhelmed and needed to sort some things out. Maybe you're feeling more stressed lately or like you're struggling with work or personal relationships. However you're feeling, you deserve to be happy and to know that there is no shame in therapy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy. In under 48 hours, you could be communicating with a therapist by phone, live chat, or video if you're comfortable. 
Now is a good time to invest in yourself and see what online therapy is all about. And special offer to Method and Madness listeners. You can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash method and madness. That's betterhelp.com slash method and madness. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. Hey, everybody. This is Eric Carter Landine, the host and producer of True Consequences Podcast. True Consequences is a true crime and mystery podcast with stories based in New Mexico and the American Desert Southwest. I started this show to bring light to cases that need to be solved in my state. You see, my brother was murdered 33 years ago, and his murderer still walks free. So I cover cases with an empathetic lens because I understand what it's like to seek justice for a family member. I hope you'll give True Consequences a chance. You can find me wherever you listen to podcasts. In April 2014, Dellen Millard and Mark Smith were formally charged with the first-degree murder of Laura Babcock. But first, they had to go to trial for the murder of Tim Bosma. We know from the previous episode that both men were convicted of first-degree murder in Tim's case. And then the trial for Laura began on October 23, 2017, where mostly circumstantial evidence would be presented. Laura's body hadn't been found. However, her bank accounts, phone, and social media accounts had no activity since early July 2012. The Crown alleged that Mark Smith and Dellen Millard had murdered Laura Babcock in the summer of 2012 and burned her body in the incinerator. The motive? Dellen needed to get rid of Laura as she was causing tension in his relationship with girlfriend Christina Nudga. The prosecution also stated that there was an aspect to the murder that Dellen and Mark were thrill-seeking. The defense was going to say that there was no evidence Laura was dead and that no body equaled no murder. They were going to suggest that she could have just taken off or died of an overdose or by suicide. Both accused men pleaded not guilty. In order to present an unbiased case, one that wouldn't unfairly sway the outcome, the jury was not going to hear anything about Tim Bosma during the trial. Not about his murder, not about Mark and Dellen's involvement, arrest, conviction, nothing. But Dellen and Mark were convicted murderers by the time they went to trial for Laura's murder. In order to shield the jurors from knowing the defendants were already convicted of murder in another case, there were precautions put into place. Heavy curtains were placed around the defense table to shield the jury from seeing the defendant's legs. There were belts binding their feet together instead of steel shackles, which would have made too much noise. Mark and Dellen were each brought into the courtroom before the jury came in where their handcuffs were removed. So how did that all work out with Dellen Millard representing himself? Yes, Dellen acted as his own lawyer during this trial. Despite having access to 2 to $3 million of his own assets, he claimed he couldn't get the finances together for an attorney. One of his first orders of business as legal representation was to complain to the judge that in prison he wasn't getting enough time to groom himself properly for his appearances in court. With his ankles bound together by a belt, 
There was a special solid wood podium next to the defense table that only Dellen would use. So again, the jury never saw his legs. Upon reading all of this, my first question was, how many jurors were unaware that Dellen and Mark had murdered Tim Bosma? Remember, this was huge news in Toronto. As it turns out, of the 200 men and women interviewed during jury selection, about half of them answered yes when asked if they'd ever heard of Dellen Millard and Mark Smitch, and said that that knowledge would not sway them in this case. Mark didn't testify during this trial and was represented by an attorney. So Dellen didn't give an opening statement to the jury. Instead, he skipped right to reading a bunch of texts, a lot of them between him and Mark Smitch, that seemed focused on Dellen's insomnia. The jury wasn't given much context on what this evidence was supposed to prove. I suspect it was to show why Dellen had frantically purchased a new mattress on July 4th. One of the witnesses that Dellen called to the stand was an animal bones expert who testified that bones pictured on Dellen's property looked consistent with deer bones. But when cross-examined, he waffled and said that it's possible the bones were human. Dellen, acting as his own lawyer, questioned Laura's father, Clayton, on the stand. Now, Clayton Babcock had tried to prevent this from happening. He requested ahead of time that he not be questioned by the man accused of murdering his daughter. But that request was denied. Dellen began with, are you nervous? To which Clayton responded, no. Dellen asked, this can't be easy for you being questioned by me considering I'm the accused. Does this make it extra difficult? To which Clayton again responded with, no. Dellen then spent the next hour questioning Laura's father and essentially victim-blaming, calling into question Laura's mental health and her relationship with her family. He even asked Clayton if he ever abused his daughter. He also questioned Sean Lerner, that friend and ex of Laura's that had filed the missing persons report and met with Dellen at a Starbucks. Dellen questioned Sean's memory of certain events and asked, Sean, you don't like me very much, do you? Sean responded, no. Dellen then asked, do you find me sketchy? And Sean said yes. The court also heard from a woman that Justice Michael Code called a good Samaritan. Jessica Trevers met Laura Babcock in late June of 2012. Laura had gotten out of a cab outside of Jessica's house and along with her dog Lacey had begun to settle down for the night on a park bench. Jessica approached Laura, introduced herself, and offered her a place to sleep. She took Laura and Lacey in for four days before dropping her back off at her parents' home. That was June 30th. The two women hugged and exchanged numbers. Later that day, Jessica called Laura and told her she'd forgotten Lacey's bowls and a pair of sunglasses. She never heard from Laura again. To explain how there was no activity on Laura's phone since early July 2012, Dellen offered up this. She must have had another phone. Now, most of what Dellen asked of witnesses was laughable. I'm trying to be neutral here, but I'm having a hard time hiding my disdain for Dellen Millard. And at this point, he was a convicted murderer, so I don't have much reason to hide my disdain. 
Remember how he purchased a new bed on July 4, 2012? Well, one witness, the salesman that sold him the mattress, Colvinder Bassey, was called to the stand to verify this purchase through sales records. During cross-examination, Dellen asked Colvinder, Did I seem agitated when I came into the store? To which the salesman responded, No, that Dellen was very polite. And when asked if Dellen seemed worried about something, the witness said he couldn't tell. Now, I worked retail right out of college. If I was called as a witness to recall a transaction from five years prior, my only response would surely be, I don't remember. Unless there was something really memorable about the customer, like they threw a fit or something, and then even then I can't say I'd recognize their face. Now, it's possible that when Dellen was arrested for the murder of Tim Bosma, that Colvinder saw his photo on the news and remembered him as the person in his store from the year prior. But it baffles me. In fact, eyewitness testimony, while extremely valuable, can also be baffling in general. Dellen also questioned the delivery man who had taken away his old mattress, and that man testified that he did not recall the delivery. Another witness that Dellen called was the father of one of Laura's former boyfriends. This man, Gabe, said that in October of 2012, he spotted Laura at a nut store in Toronto and was 97% sure it was her. She was wearing a leather jacket and talking to a shop employee about hemp. Gabe said he was shocked at seeing her, and so, under cross-examination, the prosecution asked if he reached out to Laura's family at the time to tell them he saw her. He said no. When shown a picture of Laura, Gabe admitted his surprise that that was Laura Babcock. When shown a brief video of her, he admitted on the stand that he wouldn't have known that was Laura Babcock. Dellen was also intent on proving he had no motive to kill Laura as he was in a, quote, open relationship with Christina Nudga. Sure, there was tension between the two women, he confirmed, but he wasn't monogamous and would never feel pressure to end things with Laura, particularly since, according to him, he hadn't had any kind of physical relationship with her since 2009. As for the text that Dellen sent to Christina about getting rid of her, he told the jury this, Is this text really the motive for murder, or... Is this me telling an upset girlfriend what she needs to hear in the moment so she feels okay? It's not because I'm sinister and sadistic. How much does Christina mean to me? Is she somebody that I would kill for? Is she somebody I didn't buy any gifts for? I wouldn't even give her monogamy and exclusivity. If I had the rights to Salt and Peppa's What a Man, I would be inserting that right about now. The jury was able to read many of the 65 letters that Dellen had written to Christina while he was in jail awaiting the trial for the murder of Tim Bosma. If you remember from the last episode, he had tried manipulating Christina into getting witnesses to change their stories to match his defense. In this trial, the letters read were related to Laura specifically and how she had overdosed. In one letter, Dellen told Christina, quote, so far, I've done what I can to separate you from this mess, but it is a very real possibility you will be called as a witness. Whatever you may believe, it needs to be put aside. This is what happened. 
The night Laura disappeared, I came over to your place early in the morning. I did not text or call. It was a surprise. I tapped on your window, which I do sometimes. You came back to my home with me. I told you Laura was over doing coke with Mark in the basement. We went to say goodnight to them. You saw her alive. Her alive was underlined. With Mark, and there was coke on the bar. He also suggested to Christina that Laura probably overdosed from, quote, mixing her prescriptions with Mark's coke. There were some issues surrounding how those letters were delivered to Christina. They weren't mailed. So the implication was that Dellen's lawyer must have hand-delivered them from his client to Christina, possibly to guide her in what to say on the stand if called as a witness. But Christina didn't testify and jurors didn't hear that the letters were written while Dellen was in jail awaiting a separate trial. And some of the most damning evidence were those texts between Dellen and Christina where he told her he was going to hurt her and remove her from their lives. With Laura's body still not found, the Crown said that lyrics in Mark Smitch's rap carried a lot of weight. If you go swimming, you can find her phone. It was said that those lyrics correlated with a sighting of Dellen Millard on July 4, 2012, near a lake. One of Mark's friends testified, Desi Liberatore, a 21-year-old, who said that one time in 2012, a group of people were hanging out in Mark's garage. Mark pulled out an iPad and played the rap that he'd written. When Desi asked Mark what the lyrics were all about, Mark elaborated that they torched a body and threw it in the lake. The defense grilled Desi while he was on the witness stand, questioned the accuracy of his memory, and questioned his integrity as it was known that he and the group in the garage had been smoking weed that night. And then finally, closing arguments began. Dellen started with this. I'd like to ask, what is an unreasonable doubt? I put that question out there because there's something that comes out in philosophy. Am I really here? Do I exist? Is this all a dream? Standing here in court, I can see the judge, I can see the jury— I can smell the air, touch the wood grain. On the lectern, to me, beyond reasonable doubt, is to be absolutely convinced of something. He went on to say that Laura was not dead. I don't think you'll come to the conclusion that Laura is dead. Then you have to get into how did she die, where did she die, when did she die. These all have to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. It's my position that the Crown's case is something like a convincing dream. Some parts of it add up, some things make sense, but some things do not make sense, he said. I'm not talking little details. Some of the major details do not add up. Crown attorney Jill Cameron said that the 45 words in Mark Smitch's rap song said it all. Dellen filed a 10-page application for a mistrial towards the end, saying that Mark Smitch's lawyer had an antagonistic defense and was pointing the blame at him, Dellen. But the judge shut that down quickly, rejecting the request for mistrial. When it was time for the jury to deliberate, Justice Michael Code told them they had three verdict options, manslaughter, first-degree murder, and second-degree murder. And on December 16, 2017, Mark Smitch and Dellen Millard were convicted of first-degree murder. 
The following February, the judge announced that Mark and Dellen would not be eligible for parole for 50 years, which resulted in applause and a standing ovation from the members of the courtroom. The judge said of Dellen, Millard unsuccessfully attempted to prove that there is a good side to his personality. In my view, Millard is skillful and clever in delivering pro-social behavior when it's to his advantage. The overwhelming weight of evidence from text messages to criminal behavior is that he is profoundly amoral and dangerous. Laura's ex-boyfriend, who had jump-started the search, Sean Lerner, told The Spectator, quote, The only good thing to come from this Millard situation was that it raised Laura's profile a little bit. He emphasized how her disappearance had gone ignored by police, saying, quote, I can't stress enough how little they cared. To them, she was a drug user and just some runaway. Sean has really fought to show the public who the real Laura was, a bubbly, good person who had a multitude of things happen in her life over the course of a few weeks. He called it a perfect storm. He's also filed complaints against the police for their mishandling of the case. After the outcome of the trial, Laura's father read a statement outside the courtroom. We sat through a six-week funeral for our daughter, Laura. And uh, you all know what a wonderful woman she was, as well as all the pains and struggles that she faced. You also know about the evil beings that took her life, and if society's lucky, we will not see them again on the streets. Today's verdict really brings us little joy. The loss of Laura is no less painful today than when it was realized five years ago. Like any parent that loses a child, we can only move forward with the thoughts of what might have been. We want to thank the jury. Um, all of you have sacrificed so much to do your civic duty. I hope that, uh, we hope rather, that you've been able to make some permanent friends. We also hope that you too are able to move forward and erase the bad memories that you surely must have after being exposed to such an ordeal. There's others that we want to thank, including Sean Lerner. I doubt that there's another person who cares more for his friends than than Sean. We can only wish him the best in all he does in the future. And if we can ever be of assistance, please don't hesitate to call. To all those who are friends to Laura, especially the strangers, because of you, our faith in humanity remains steadfast, although obviously shaken. We hope that the kindness you showed Laura is returned to you tenfold. But Laura's family still had a rough road ahead. After the trial, they had to face another ordeal. Due to some gap in communication between offices, Laura's parents had to go to court to prove to Ontario's Superior Court Justice that their daughter was dead. Because her remains were never found, it didn't matter that there was a conviction of murder. Linda Babcock fought for legislative change, as this was most likely just an oversight and a rare circumstance, but no family should have to submit paperwork to get a proper death certificate after their loved one's killers convicted. And the judge had already declared that loved one dead. Now that we've looked at the facts of this case, what about the motive? Crown attorney Jill Cameron had said of Dellen and Mark, quote, they killed Ms. Babcock and Mr. Bosma for the thrill they needed. 
In the book, Serial Killers, The Method and Madness of Monsters, author and criminal justice historian Peter Vronsky says that thrill killers derive intense satisfaction from the process of murder, the planning, the events leading up to the killing, more so than the killing itself. There's an adrenaline rush in bringing terror to their victim. So little is known about what Tim and Laura went through in their final moments. A cause of death for Laura can only be speculated, and as much as we hope that Tim didn't see it coming, we just don't know. But we do know what the evidence shows, which is a lot of planning, a lot of communication between the killers about their preparation, and their overall glee with their missions. So that aligns with thrill killing. And clearly, Dellen Millard and Mark Smith display no signs of remorse, regard for others, empathy, or morals. I don't think it can be ignored that there's also an aspect of this where when you look at Dellen Millard and his lifestyle, he was basically used to getting what he wanted. Combine that with someone with no moral compass and the ability to manipulate others, whether it's his girlfriend Christina or his best friend Mark Smitch. Put yourself into the mind of Dellen Millard for a moment. When he needed a truck, a diesel truck to help him save a buck in his drive to Mexico, he set out to get exactly what he wanted. And that meant, for him, taking it. It wasn't going to save him any money to buy a diesel truck. His entitlement, combined with his lack of empathy and regard for others, just fueled his mission. Why pay for it if I can just take it? I'll take it. I'll get rid of the body. I'm smarter than everyone else. It's a done deal. What he never considered, what probably never crossed his mind, was that he wasn't actually smarter than anyone else, and his ego didn't allow for him to successfully commit a crime. He craved the attention that the planning, the executing, the covering up brought him, and therefore he left a ton of evidence. That theme of being smarter than everyone else continued throughout Dellen's life, whether he was dropping out of school because his teachers weren't interesting enough, his, quote, or talking to all of his friends about his missions with no concern that he'd be caught. When he decides to act as his own counsel because he can do it better than an actual lawyer. When he writes letters to his girlfriend to manipulate the outcome of his trial. Smarter than everyone else. Since there's barely any physical evidence to look at with Laura's murder, and since police never interviewed the last person she contacted— we can only guess what happened that night. And the Crown already speculated what they think happened. It is hard to imagine that the motive was for Dellen to get out of this love triangle that the headlines keep throwing around. There's one time when Dellen Millard may have been telling the truth. Would he really care that Christina Nudga felt jealousy toward Laura? Would he feel the need to appease someone that he wasn't even monogamous with? And would he even care? I suspect that with Laura, the thrill aspect came in. He thought she wouldn't be missed. And then when he realized he was successful, he goes and commits another murder. The one that we'll be looking at in the next episode. Coming up on Method and Madness. Wayne Millard died in November of 2012, just months after Laura Babcock went missing and six months before Dellen and Mark killed Tim Bosma. Initially ruled a suicide, Wayne's death 
would now be revisited. Thank you so much for listening to Method and Madness. I appreciate you. This is an independent podcast, so if you're interested in showing your support, you can leave a five-star rating on Spotify or a five-star review on Apple Podcast or on Podchaser. And thank you for those of you who've already left such lovely reviews. I'm on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at Method and Madness Pod. There's a Method and Madness page on Facebook as well. To chat or discuss the episode, reach out to me, methodandmadnesspod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is researched, written, and hosted by me. It is sound edited by Mo and Spo. Thank you to Faith and John of the Mission Rejected podcast and to Rohan for lending their voices for the theme music. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast that discusses dark and disturbing subject matter. Take care of yourself. And for crisis support, text hello to 741-741.